can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Before we begin, if you're able, I would ask for you to stand with me for the reading of the first five verses together of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Thank You. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me once again in prayer. Oh, Father, Lord, I ask You for help. God, I pray that You would subdue our hearts with Your Word. Father, help us to look deeply, longingly and intently into Your Word, even as we consider many things that perhaps we're even familiar with, I pray for fresh manna. O God, that we would not live upon yesterday's bread, but that You would restore us anew. Provide today according to Your Word. O God, I ask that You would feed us. Your Son said man must not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I pray You would nourish our souls by Your Word. Oh, Father, please do guard me from misspeaking. Help me to be clear. Lord, help us to enter into the glories of the words and prayer of your son, that we may know him and know you and even experience the eternal life that's promised to us because of him. Father, I pray that you would fill this place with a sense of your presence. We know that you've promised to be with us. We do ask that you would let us know that you are here according to your mighty spirit. Father, I ask that the gospel would be set before us once again. We may grow in our love for you. In Jesus name. Amen. First, just a little bit of recap where we've been in John 17. A couple of weeks ago, we started in the first verse and we considered how this prayer of Jesus comes in the context of what we've been seeing in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Particularly, Jesus has been promising the disciples that they will have union, communion, fellowship with God, with Himself by the Spirit. He's going to send the Spirit and that the Father loves them and they have this living, vital connection to the Godhead because of Christ. 
And we saw in the first message how our union to Christ provides for us access to God. And that even in Christ's prayer here, He's modeling and demonstrated the very access that we have to the Father. We have this very kind of access on the basis of Christ. And in the last message last week, we looked primarily at the second and third verse. And we saw the relationship between Christ's authority over all flesh, His authority as the judge over all flesh, and His authority given by the Father to grant eternal life. And what that eternal life is, it's not just a never-ending existence, but it's actually knowing God, loving God, relating with the God you've come to know. And then here today we pick up in verses 4 and 5 will be our focus today. And I just want to ask this question. And I say this because so much of the time we read things that we're very familiar with. I I once heard a man preaching a message on the infinitude of God. You know what the infinitude of God is? It's His infinitude that you can't measure God's existence. That God goes on and on and on and on. He's He's, you, can't, you can't come up with any terminology to contain God. You, you can't measure Him in any way. He's infinite. And the brother preaching said about six or seven times throughout the message, he said, you know, we, we know, people already know that God is infinite. We already know. And he kept saying that, like, we know God's infinite. We already know this. And he was a friend of mine, both of us studying and being mentored to preach. And when we got done... We gathered around him, the pastor and myself, and, and he looks at us and he says for the seventh or eighth time, you know, we, I mean, we already know that God's infinite. And the pastor looked at him and said, no, we don't. No, we don't. We don't comprehend what that means. And even if you think you know, there's depths that you have not come in contact with to God. He is, in fact, incomprehensible. And I say that because right now I look at the world and there are a lot of people that talk about Jesus. And maybe you say, well, you're always on about that. People who say we're Christians, and yet I'm telling you there are many who say that who really aren't. Why do I constantly say that? Well, let me challenge you to go and read the four Gospels. Go and read the New Testament epistles and find how often it is that there are loving and real warnings that are issued to the world lying in unbelief. And I believe that it's not just important that we say there are false Christians, people who think they know Christ that are going to hell, I don't think we're only supposed to stop at recognizing that, but seeking to address the areas where they're wrong. I heard Paul Washer once say, you can be wrong about a lot of things. You can't be wrong about Jesus. And I believe he's right. That's not to say that we'll know everything there is to know fully about Christ. But when it comes to what he's revealed to be true about himself, we must be believing in this Jesus, the one in this book, in this gospel. And you recall... We considered in the very first sermon of John's Gospel, his summary statement, his his authorial intent he gave us in chapter 20 and verse 31, where he says, These things I've written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. If you don't believe in the Jesus who is revealed in this book, you have no life in His name. And so what is it? Two points that I believe people go wildly astray at. They don't understand what it means that Jesus is the Son of Man. That Jesus is truly human. That He truly took upon Himself flesh is the first. And the second 
is they don't understand that Jesus truly is the son of God, that he is the God man, God in the flesh. These two realities are perfectly put before us in these verses today. We'll start with verse four. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, at first glance, does that sound significant to you? Jesus praying, telling the Father, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. Let me suggest that there may not be a more crucial or pivotal statement in all of the Bible concerning Jesus' life and ministry than that one there. Jesus says, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, immediately, if you're thinking and you think about what Christ came to accomplish, you ought to immediately be asking this question. Wait a minute. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, has he? This is prior to the cross. This is the night before he would go to the cross and do that great work of dying and then rising from the dead three days later. Jesus says, I've already accomplished the work you gave me to do. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus has already accomplished the work? Well, let me paint a picture for you to to draw out how significant this is. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20 says this. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There are going to be some scriptures here that we will consider together that you're going to be tempted to think, oh yes, of course, we know humanity has fallen in sin. Yes, we know that none do good, none are righteous, none seek after God. That all are in rebellion to God. You're going to be tempted to think, I already understand that. But there is something to this truth that ought to make your heart break within you. We're so, it's been said before that we, we drink iniquity like water and that like a fish doesn't know that it's wet, we don't realize our sin. We're so accustomed to living in a fallen world that we're not quite bothered by it in the way that we should be sure. I'll be bothered by the politician who has a different perspective than me and evil that I see in that level. But I'm not quite so bothered by a statement. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. What does that have to do with our text? Jesus says he's accomplished the work that the father gave him to do. Which one of you can say that you have accomplished the work that the Father, that God has given you to do? For that matter, what has God given you to do? What is the essence of what God has given you to do? Again, from Ecclesiastes chapter 13, the last two verses in the book, as a matter of fact, Solomon's summary of the entire end of the matter. All has been heard. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus says, I've accomplished the work you've given me to do. What work has God given us to do? He's assigned to us all that we would fear him and keep his commandments. Now, would you be so bold or arrogant as to say you have accomplished that work, that you have feared God and kept his commandments? And this God who's given these commandments is going to bring all things into judgment. That's what Solomon tells us. So how does that practically apply to you? Sure, you may say, well, nobody's perfect and we all sin and the entire human race has failed. But what does that actually look like practically? Look with me for just a moment at Matthew chapter 22. 
This is the, the, the clearest expression of what it means to accomplish the work or the assignment that God has given us as human beings. Matthew chapter 22, begin reading in, in verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's been suggested that these scriptures right here are a summary statement of the Ten Commandments. And that's true. You could also say that these, these two commandments here are a summary expression of all the hundreds of laws that the Jews had in the Old Testament. The commandments from God that they sought to live according to. And really all of these commandments come down to one commandment. To love the Lord your God. Essentially, what Solomon's telling us is that you fear God and keep His commandments is to love God. Now here's the clear truth about this. That the miserable failure that you and I so frequently demonstrate in our lives, it didn't begin with us. This is so important for us to understand when Jesus says, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. This is why it's so necessary, so important. What is the source of our failure? Why is it that we don't love God and keep His commandments? Why is it that there's something in me that doesn't love God and love my neighbor and every other commandment God's ever given? Why do I fail at that? What's the starting point for all of this? And perhaps, if you recognize your sin, you might expect to find is there someone out there who could provide for me a, a way of an escape? Someone who could represent me in some way. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Remember the first half of the message here. The first point, the Son of Man. Jesus as the God-Man. You see, God created Adam in the beginning upright. Adam was not with sin. Adam was without sin as God made him. And God's assignment for Adam was to fill the earth with God's own glory. Why do I say that? God creates Adam and puts him in paradise. And if you go and read the context, you'll read there that God says within Himself, the Trinity says, let us make man in our image. And the next thing He says is, fill the earth and subdue it. With what? The image of God. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. In essence, here was Adam's assignment. Fill the earth with God's glory by having sinless children who would reflect God's righteousness and perfections. That was Adam's assignment. And then, of course, we know came temptation and the fall. And Adam and all his children are made beholden to sin and death and unable to accomplish the purpose for which they were made. For what reason did God make people in His image? To glorify Him. And He failed. And everyone after Him failed. And yet we know a promise was given. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise 
is healed. Now picture this historically. God makes this promise. Adam and Eve remember it. They repeat it to their children. That's why it's in your Bible now. It's because this promise was repeated until eventually Moses wrote it down several years later, hundreds of years later. But up until that point, God's given this promise. They heard it. And you can imagine the excitement, the joy, the relief that Eve felt on the day that Cain was born. Her son. Here's a son born. There's going to be a seed that takes care of this issue. And then you fast forward and you see this seed, this son, Cain, killing his brother, falling into the same snare as his parents had. And of course, his brother's dead now, so that one can't be the heir either. That can't be the seed. And you fast forward from Cain all the way through to Jesus Christ. And every child who was born during that time period could have been seen as a possible deliverer. One who would fulfill God's promise to redeem. Here's the important part. To redeem the glory of God, which was originally upon man. You you see the point in this? It's a big deal to the glory of God that Jesus accomplished the work. And as we're going to see, He accomplished it as a man. From Adam all the way to Christ, everyone had failed until... This is why we ought to rejoice to read Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, a seed born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the picture. The stakes in Christ's life and ministry on the earth were as high as they possibly could have been. If Christ Jesus failed at this assignment, it would be the end of all hope for the human race. If Jesus did not accomplish the works given to Him by the Father, you are going to die in your sin face judgment. There has to be a correction, a fulfillment made. And in light of the failure of Adam, what does it mean that Jesus says, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do? You see, Adam fell at the very first hint of temptation in the garden. He fell. The moment. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever wondered about that? You don't ever see Adam, even at one point, facing temptation and falling until the first time it enters. As soon as temptation enters, he falls. What about this Jesus? What about this one who says, I accomplished all that you've given me to do? How did he fare against the same devil? Not once, not twice, three times you see him facing down with the same enemy of man and enemy of God. How did he fare? Look briefly at Matthew chapter four with me. Matthew chapter four. Jesus says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Beginning in verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Just pause. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever noticed that? Who led Jesus into this temptation? The Spirit of God. The triune God is at work in us in order to bring about this great salvation. And He was at work in Christ to face temptation and overcome temptation. Here's an encouraging thing to see. The Spirit 
led him up into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That's a fascinating encounter, isn't it? The devil creeps into the garden according to God's ordained purpose that he might send this second man, this last Adam to come and redeem us from the fall. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve, and they fall miserably here. Christ the Lord. What's so fascinating is it would be easy for you to say that. Well, that was Jesus. Of course, he was God. He couldn't sin as if the temptation were not real. You see the context. Do you think that the father in heaven gets hungry? That was his experience as a man before the tempter, the one who came to him. And even at the end, after this encounter, he's exhausted. He has to be ministered to by angels at the end of all of that as a man. And think on this. We considered this last week when the devil says all of this, I'll give to you. Remember, he's got authority over all flesh. He had that for eternity with the father. Jesus always had authority over all that he had made. And yet, as a man, as a man, he's been given the right to have authority over all flesh. And what the devil was tempting him with in that text He was saying, I'm going to give you something that's related to why you've come as a man to have dominion over everything through disobedience, exactly like he did with Adam. Disobey God in order to be fulfilled and partake of this divine nature. Something Kevin pointed out after one of the last messages, we were considering what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature and how we're promised by union to Christ that we have access to the triune God and get to partake of the glories of the Godhead relationally. And he pointed out that that's exactly what the devil tempted Adam and Eve with in the beginning. You'll be like God. They tried to partake of the divine nature, to be like God through disobedience. And yet it did not avail. And all of us like them have failed. And yet Jesus, as a man in temptation by the devil, fulfills all righteousness. He says, I've accomplished the work. I've, I've fulfilled righteousness. I've, I've satisfied your required assignment for man. Man was meant to glorify you and he failed. Jesus glorified the Father. He says, I've glorified you on earth. As a man on earth, I've glorified you. He could stand toe to toe with the devil and prevail. And as a man, Jesus was tempted as all of us are. And he never faltered, not even once. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest 
who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You need to know something as a Christian here today. When you're tempted, Jesus knows what that's like. He understands your weaknesses and the weaknesses within you that want to give in to that temptation. And because here's the truth, if Christ, if we could not say that he was yet without sin. then he can't do anything for you in your weakness and failure and sin, but he is yet without sin. Now this kind of makes there's some there's some application in light of one of the early points that I made. One of the main reasons that people reject Jesus today is that they're prepared to accuse him of sin. They think, well, Jesus must have sinned. And there are people who even will try to argue that Jesus sinned or was okay with sin. They'll say, look, he spent time with sinners. And you go and find, if you read those accounts, he always says things like this repent or go and sin no more. He, he, he challenges them in their sin. But then there are those who even call themselves Christians, who effectively accuse Jesus of sin. How so? Well, when Jesus' words come to you and they challenge you concerning a sin that you want to enjoy, if you look, if you disregard and ignore the word of Christ, then you might not admit that you're calling Jesus a sinner or one who was able to err. But essentially, that's what you're saying. Jesus was wrong. I know Jesus said this is not okay. I know the Bible says this is evil in the sight of God, but I'm not going to focus. I'm going to ignore that completely. I'm going to come up with a way to reinterpret those verses that allows me to continue enjoying my sin. That is essentially seeing Jesus as fallible, errant, a sinner himself. You see, those who do that I fear, don't even realize that in doing so, they're spurning the love of the only one who can forgive and reconcile them to God. What it means that Jesus accomplished all that the Father had given Him to do was that He was perfectly righteous and without sin or error. Jesus, and think of that definition given that we looked at. Jesus says the law and prophets, all of God's commandments to fear God and, and to keep his command, commandments means this, that you love the Lord your God. And here Jesus, he loved the father with an unrivaled, undefiled and pure love. And his perfect love for his father was evident in all that he said and all that he did. And we forget this. He did it as a man. Jesus did this as a man. Consider what Peter has to say in reflecting upon the Mount of Transfiguration. This is amazing. There's this vision they have up on the mountain and there's Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. You get the connection? Law and prophets, Moses and Elijah. And there they are. Here's two men, two very good men on a human perspective, a human level. We would say very good men, leaders for God. And yet fallible men. And Peter, he looks at him and says, hey, let's, let's build some structures. We'll just all hang out here forever together. We've got Moses. We've got Elijah. This is great. Jesus is a man. Here's some more men. Good men. Let's hang out together. And then there's this terrifying, striking and glorious voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son 
with whom I'm well pleased. And in that context, he says, hear him, listen to him. In other words, he stands infinitely above Moses and Elijah. He's not like them. He is that he's a man, but he's more than that. And it's him as a man and the perfect righteousness that he fulfilled that avails for us. Jesus is the one who accomplished all the work the father gave him to do is one who is mighty, who is spotless and one who truly has displayed the glory of God as a perfect man. One who can say, I've glorified you and accomplished the work you gave me to do. One thing I'm not even really getting into that I think is intimately connected to this. If you go back and you can look at this in John, there's one occasion in previous chapters uh, perhaps it's, it's chapter 8, I believe, maybe. Go and look for yourself. Where Jesus says about accomplishing the work. He's accomplishing the works that the Father's given Him to do. And it's in relationship to His signs. His witness of God. Do you see the connection? Living righteously, fulfilling all righteousness, is declaring this is who God is. And as Jesus performs these miracles, it's a witness of who God is. The Father's bearing witness of Him in that context. But in our considerations, we're seeing that even before Christ went to the cross, he glorified the father. Now, I can imagine somebody hearing all this and saying, well, so what? Man's fallen in sin. He has no hope of saving himself. So what? All this means that Jesus has accomplished the works God gave him to do. All it means that Jesus was righteous and sinless. All that means is that Jesus isn't going to face the judgment of God, right? Well, if he never sinned, well, he's not going to face the wrath of God. But what does that have to do with me? How can the sinless life of one man help me? You know, that's actually a very fitting question. And it challenges us to ask the second half. It leads us perfectly into the second half of our thoughts. Was Jesus only a man? This is vitally important. Was he only a man? You see, was Jesus merely some powerful teacher? There are people, there are many people today go by the name Christian. And what they mean by that is they like the teachings of Jesus about loving one another, about about turning the other cheek, about doing morally nice things, taking care of widows and orphans. They like Jesus kindness and benevolence as a teacher. But no more than that, just a man who was very intelligent, who was lived a life above reproach. He was a, a great teacher. But after all, he died. And we're not confronted by this as we ought to be. How foolish is it to imagine that man can kill God? Is it any wonder why it's a stumbling block to those in the day? How can God, the limitless God, die at the hands of men? Isn't that ridiculous? It's impossible. And after all, if Jesus is only a man, then I can view him as my equal. You think about this, if we lessen Jesus to the point of only a man, though he is truly a man, if we lessen him to only a man, I can say, well, he may have lived according to his own religious beliefs, his interpretations of truth. But what gives his conviction greater authority than my own? If Jesus is only a man and I'm a man, then I'll keep the things he said that I like and disregard the rest. You see. It's significant the way these things come together. And if you're one that would think that way 
about Jesus and you just deciding whether or not you're going to hear him on the basis of him being no better, no different than you. Psalm 50, verse 21 says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You think he's like you. You think that you can sit in judgment over the Lord Jesus Christ, the very God as we're about to see unfold before us. This very God says, you're not like me. I'm going to rebuke you for thinking I'm like you. He's above us and greater than us in every way. And so the answer, what flows directly into our thoughts in the beginning of the second half of our focus, the first, Jesus is the Son of Man. He is truly man, truly human. The second half is verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here we have it. He was truly man. He did accomplish the work that no man had ever accomplished. And here we begin to enter into the realm of the incomprehensible. How can you hope to wrap your minds around this? It's vast and unsearchable. We're reading of one who is truly man in every respect and yet existed with the Father before the world was made. What is he saying? You see Jesus? Yes, he's a man, but he's more than a man. He's not only a man. John told us in the beginning pages, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. He says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here is the expression. The birth of Jesus of Nazareth in Bethlehem was not the beginning of His existence. He came into this world of time from eternity. And Jesus' ascension to the Father was not Him attaining unto something that He'd never known. When Jesus says, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had when? Before the world existed. Glory with the Father that He knew before His incarnation. His ascension was Him returning to His rightful place. The place He'd always known. And now this is the point. This is the point at which you ought to be paying full attention. This is the point at which the work he accomplished begins to have an eternal significance for you. I'm telling you that though the son of God knew perfect glory, he had perfect union with the father and the spirit prior to coming into this world. The prayer being offered in your text today. Is coming off of the lips of a man. That's significant. Jesus knew this authority, this unity, this glory, this power and authority. He knew it with the Father forever. But never as a man. Never in this way as a man who had accomplished all righteousness and doing what the Father had told him to do, which you and I fail at. Now as a man, he can say, Father, glorify me. In this way, there is something entirely unique about Jesus' prayer here. And yet, we are beginning to see something of the relationship with God 
that's been made available to us. This is huge. Don't, do not miss this. Jesus is praying, I had glory with you before. I had glory in eternity with you, Father. I knew you then. And now I'm coming back to you as a man. There's a connection to God as a man that Jesus has made possible for men, for women, for children to know God in this way as a man. No, we don't become God or have the same glory in that way. But there are scriptures that tell us that we we are glorified. What does that mean? Our union with him is so intimate that it can be said of us that we get to share in that glory because of us. No. Because of him. We don't get to pray. You and I as those who have known. This unique intimacy and glory. Within the Godhead from eternity. And yet our union to Christ. Has brought us. Into this triune relationship. He says. And now father glorify me. In your own presence. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And I'm going to suggest to you that something in that glory is, is, is supremely seen in that relationship itself. Do you think the glory that Jesus is describing has to do with great riches and wealth? Has to do with some grand structure? Let me suggest to you the glory being described here is the glory of the triune relationship that he'd always known. Before anything else existed. It's the relationship. And what's fascinating about that. Just glance at John 17 down to verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Think on this. Jesus is saying the glory he's praying for has to do with being in the presence of the father. And he says, Father, I want them to be with us where we are. That's how we enter into that as men, as human beings, because he did it as a human being who was not only a human being, truly God, and truly man. We're on the precipice here of, I believe, the two greatest doctrines in all the Bible, the Trinity. And the hypostatic union. You don't get deeper or higher than that. Consider the quote on your bulletin from Spurgeon. He says this. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect. Nothing so magnify the whole soul of man. As a devout, earnest, continued investigation. Of the great subject of the deity. The most excellent study for expanding the soul. Is the science of Christ and him crucified. And the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. That's something the Lord has been leading my heart toward in the last number of years. And particularly this last year, when I read that from Spurgeon, I thought, I know, I know what he's talking about. I'm beginning to see the love of God triune. And that's exactly what's expressed to us here. You see, Jesus prayer. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed is specifically related to his resurrection and ascension back to the father's side. And he prays this after he's accomplished all righteousness as a man. Now. Now. 
If there were not something in between those two events, there is no hope for us. Do you catch my meaning? Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. He's done what's right according to the Father. He's spotless in every way. And He's going to the Father. Back to the glory of the Father. If, there, if that's all there is, there's no hope for you or me. Why do I say that? That this momentous event, the foundation of the Christian faith, is hinged on these two realities. That He is the Son of Man. He is truly man, able to bear the sins of men. And that He is truly God, able to endure the wrath of God, to swallow it up, to rise from the dead victorious. These are both necessary. If these aren't true, there's no hope for you and I of entering in to this relationship. The cross of Jesus Christ is the link which connects His prayer before you now with His ascension that is to come. It is the cross of Christ which unites all our hopes of being reconciled to God. It's the cross, you see, that tells me His perfect righteousness doesn't only allow Him to stand before the Father. It's His cross that tells me the door has been opened for me as a man, or you as a woman, or even a child can enter in because of Him. That's what this is so important that we realize. It's open for us. There are really three more scriptures I want to look at with you in the culmination of these things. The first one is found in Psalm number 24. Psalm number 24. The youth kids ought to recognize this scripture. We went through it a few weeks back. We considered this glory in Psalm 24. We'll read the whole psalm. Consider this in light of Jesus saying, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do and glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was in light of this psalm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Pause. Who will accomplish the will of the Lord? Who will stand before the Lord? Who will do the work the Lord's assigned to him? Who shall do this? Verse four. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see the importance of this? That for a man to have this access to God, he must have clean hands and a pure heart. And you don't. I have not clean hands. But that's the requirement. Many have suggested, and I believe rightly, rightly so, that the hill of the Lord that's to be ascended here, you know, that could be understood as the mountain of Sinai. The mountain the law was given on. Who's going up that hill? Only the righteous. You can't climb that hill on your own. Isn't that seen so clearly in Pilgrim's Progress? That you can't climb that mountain of law, of legality. He says, He will receive blessing from the Lord. 
and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The King of glory. He is the Son of Man. And He is the Son of God. And He must be. Even from our thoughts last week, the question that we could ask in light of Psalm 24, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will climb that high place? We could say as well from Revelation, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who has the strength to open the scroll that's sealed by your sin against God? Who who has the strength? Only the lion from the tribe of Judah. Only the king of glory can open that thing up. And he says, as a man, to those gates of heaven be opened that men may come in. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Romans 5. Here's the point. You're born in Adam. We read that already. Romans 5 tells us you are under the oversight and authority of Adam. He is your head as you come into this world. And he failed and you with him. Romans 5 tells us the hope and the necessity of Jesus Christ being the man for us now. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. And it continued reigning after Moses. And he says even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't blame me. Paul's the repetitive one here. 
But could it be any clearer? The one man, Adam, you're dead, you're damned, you're ruined in him. You're living under his shadow. And the one man, Jesus Christ, as a man and as God comes to redeem you from that curse. That's the message. And all of this prayer he's offering to the father on behalf of you realize his prayer that he might save all those the father gave to him is not disconnected from these verses here. This is why he has authority to give eternal life, because he is the righteous man. That avails for us. Repentance and faith in Christ, the God man is the grounds for knowing God. For enjoying that eternal life Jesus has been telling us about. To know the one true God. How? Through repentance and faith in the God-man. Repent and believe this gospel. Paul tells Timothy in one clear and concise statement in chapter 2 and verse 5 of 1 Timothy. There is one God. And there is one mediator. Between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is God, truly so. He is man, truly so. And you know what? If God were to open heaven to give us a vision all right now, if we could look up into heaven and we could see heaven before our very gaze, we would see a man. Seated on the throne. A man. How can it be? Because he is God in the flesh. And as we're going to see, that is the necessary foundation for our relationship to the triune God is in this God who became man. Does that seem elementary to you as a Christian? Something you surely have heard for years and years. If you say, I already know that. I'll say, the pastor and mentor of mine. No, you don't. Dwell on these things. Pray through these things. That you may come to know them and glory in them. That I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for sending your Son in the likeness of men to redeem men from our sin and failure, to live righteously for us, to die in our place, to rise from the dead. Oh, Father, I pray that we would enjoy all the glorious benefits of that union. That we would know Him and love Him as He's made Himself known. Lord, help us to see and worship Him now, even as we prepare to gather around Your table. I ask in Jesus' name.